one of the repeated and harsh criticisms about ancient Indian culture by European outsiders is that India has had only what they consider fantastical literature and superstitious myths and no accounts or sense of so-called real history. Some commentators, like Karl Marx, therefore concluded that Indian culture and economy stood timelessly outside of history, never changing, eternal, but also stagnant with little or no political progress. In particular, Europeans looked in vain for written historical accounts by Indians that resembled post-enlightenment Western ideas of dated, factual historical accounts of actual human events scientifically documented. But that's not the only kind of history writing possible. As you will recall from the last lecture, the Ramayana also conveyed different types of history to both Indians and to outsiders. In this lecture on the Mahabharat, we'll see how Hindus developed a new genre that was explicitly history writing, called in Sanskrit itahasa, the term that literally means thus it happened. Sometimes the term itahasa is translated into English as an epic along the lines of Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. This type of work involves a sequential narration of past events, mostly on earth, mostly carried out by human beings on a relatively realistic scale. However, there are no consistent dates given. Key episodes take place in heaven and the divine occasionally intervenes including by having human children with human partners. Nevertheless, the Itahasa genre contains very rich historical material, though it's hard to date in Edic terms. We'll start by looking at the sources and nature of the Mahabharata. Then we'll survey its main plot, discussing as we go what this text has meant from emic as well as Edic perspectives on ancient Indian history. The Mahabharata stands as the longest major text in human history, containing about 1.8 million words. That's 10 times longer than Homer's Iliad and Odyssey combined, and over twice the length of the Christian Bible. The Mahabharata is also one of the world's most complex texts in terms of its multiple origins and multi-layered structure. Many branch stories, frame stories, side stories and asides interweave diverse material around an already complex central plot, currently arranged into 18 major books, 100 minor books, plus an appendix. The Mahabharata proudly proclaims itself encyclopedic, asserting, quote, whatever exists in the world is to be found in the Mahabharata. Whatever is not there does not exist. The Mahabharata has a complex authorship. Vyasa is the emically credited author, although he dictated so fast that only the elephant-headed Hindu god Ganesha could write fast enough and long enough to take it all down. In fact, Ganesha, who is the god of overcoming obstacles, agreed to serve as the scribe only if Vyasa never stopped dictating until the Mahabharata was finished. In addition, Vyasa is also a significant figure in the plot, being the biological grandfather of the two sets of royal cousins who battle each other as a central theme in the narrative. 
but Vyasa is not actually present or an eyewitness to many of the events he narrates. In Western law courts and history, that would be secondhand hearsay. But in emic terms, Vyasa is so divinely inspired that he knows everything, not just what he sees with his eyes, but more importantly, what he understands with his cosmic insight. This brief description only suggests the multi-layered authorship that the text proclaimed for itself. In Eddic terms, the Mahabharata was probably compiled from many sources and by many authors over a period at least 900 years long, from the 6th century BC to the 4th or 5th century CE. Indeed, so many sources have come together in the Mahabharata that some Eddic scholars do not believe there was ever an original text. Instead, earlier and later accounts, including folk tales and many different regionally based religious traditions, were probably pulled together by later compilers around the central story of two sets of royal cousins battling for the throne. One section of the Mahabharata even includes a brief version of the entire Ramayana. Therefore, the Mahabharata describes a North Indian social, cultural, and political world similar to that in its contemporary text, the Ramayana. Both texts have as their central figures Kshatriyas, who try to follow that caste or Varna's martial dharma, or code for conduct. But the leading figure in the Ramayana acts flawlessly, which makes him sometimes difficult to relate to for mere mortals like us. In contrast, None of the major figures in the Mahabharata acts perfectly. All occasionally deviate from their dharma, especially in politics or in the heat of battle. They therefore commit questionable deeds that create demerits, bad karma. This makes the Mahabharata more complicated and also more human. Some Eddic readers today find the Mahabharata's vast detail about each weapon and each face-to-face -face combat in many battles uninteresting. But for military historians, this is rich evidence about the warfare in ancient India. Further, for the main intended audience of Kshatriyas, the detailed martial accounts that stand at the core of the Mahabharata were endlessly captivating. Thus, the political world of the Mahabharata is that of many rival, regionally-based Hindu kingdoms. Each was constantly striving to survive or expand by building a loose coalition through marriage and other political alliances. Fighting and political intrigue could be very fierce and bloody. In what seemed to be the oldest layers of the Mahabharata, this warfare was largely celebrated as the highest purpose of a Kshatriya. But in what seemed to be later elements of the text, the carnage has become a tragedy. Two of the related and enduring strands are first, the nature and succession of royal dynasties, and second, how women's honor both binds and divides men into factions. Now such a massive work with innumerable names and episodes is difficult to convey in summary form. But by leaving out all except the most essential figures and clinging to the core plot, we can at least appreciate the richness of the Mahabharata. The title Mahabharata literally means the great account of the ancient Bharata royal dynasty. Bharat 
also being the official name chosen by today's Republic of India for itself in Indian languages. Well, the Mahabharata includes many backstories about the earlier history of the royal Bharata dynasty, we can greatly simplify the plot by starting with one of its most prominent members, the virtuous and powerful King Shantanu, who ruled over Hastinapura, located on the upper Ganges River. Although we don't have any Eddic evidence about King Shantanu himself, we know that Hastinapura was one of the many hundreds of rival Janapadas, each a small kingdom in north or central India. As the Mahabharata explains, the man who became King Shantanu had, in a previous life, been so virtuous that he reached heaven. But on his arrival there, he was attracted to a bevy of beautiful goddesses, and in particular, the goddess of the Ganges River. When a puff of wind blew up the skirt of her sari, he stared at her legs, thus gaining demerits for improper desire. We'll recall that desire in the orthodox Hindu model has negative consequences. So his act condemned him to be immediately reborn on earth as King Shantanu. But before leaving heaven, he begged the Ganges river goddess to voluntarily take birth in the world as his queen. She graciously agreed, but on condition that he never questioned anything she did, or else she would abandon him. As an aside, I'm told that such pre-nuptial arrangements can prove useful in marriages, especially between people of unequal status. This marriage, therefore, had the characteristics of hypogamy, a woman marrying down, which is rarely successful in Indian religious teachings. The Ganges River bears King Shantanu's seven healthy sons, but she drowns each at birth. Every time, King Shantanu restrains himself from questioning her. But on the birth of their eighth son, he can no longer restrain himself, and he protests this infanticide. He thus breaks their prenuptial arrangement. But before she departs for heaven, she explains that the dead sons were gods cursed for a minor fault to live in the world, but who begged her to kill them at birth before they could commit any bad karma on earth. She also graciously allows the last born boy to survive. This surviving son, who was thus also a god incarnated on earth, grows up as a model prince and dutiful son. Indeed, Shantanu's surviving son arranges the remarriage of his now wifeless father. King Shantanu has fallen in love with a lowly but young and beautiful fisherwoman, Sachavati. To persuade the bride's parents to agree to the extremely unequal marriage, the son makes a tremendous vow that he will cede the throne to the fisherwoman's sons, and also that he himself will never have any children who might rival his half-brothers. In thus giving up his own royal inheritance and his sexuality, he receives the name Bhishma, meaning the awesome vowing one. In due time, Bhishma becomes the clan elder. But King Shantanu's biological dynasty soon gets challengingly twisted. Indeed, one of the leading Euro-American translators of the Mahabharata, the late J.A.B. Van Boynton, argued that Brahmin genealogists composed the most complex inheritance line possible as a series of perplexing puzzles for one another. The fisherwoman has two unhealthy sons with Shantanu. 
but the elder son dies childless. The younger son is too feeble to win a royal bride for himself. So Bhishma now has to enter a bridal contest for his inadequate half-brother. This is highly unconventional, especially since Bhishma has self-sacrificingly already arranged his own father's second marriage and giving up having children of his own. But now he has to win a child, a wife for his weak half-brother as well. In a contest among princes, Bhishma wins three royal sisters, Amba, Ambika, and Ambalika. The first, Amba, already has an intended groom and begs release from Bhishma. He graciously lets her go. But Amba's fiancé feels slighted and rejects her. She then vows revenge on Bhishma, cremating herself in order to acquire enough merit to achieve this in her next life. Indeed, she is reborn as the person who will later cause Bhishma's lingering death. Bhishma gives the other two royal sisters he's won to his half-brother, who dies of exhaustion while trying unsuccessfully to impregnate them both. This leaves King Shantanu's throne vacant. But his fisherwoman queen remembers an incident from her girlhood when she bore a premarital son with a Brahmin sage. This son is Vyasa, the emic author of the entire Mahabharata. He was raised in the forest by his father. Now his birth mother summons him to impregnate her two widowed daughters-in-law. This practice of leveret, where a man legally stands in for his deceased brother, has been found in many societies around the world. The Mahabharata and other Indian sources show it was customary in ancient India as well, but this was certainly not the ideal way to perpetuate Shantanu's dynasty. Vyasa, coming straight from his forest hermitage, unbathed, with uncut, matted hair and coarse bark clothing, is so fiercely full of austerities that the elder daughter-in-law, Ambika, shuts her eyes. She therefore gives birth to a son, Dhritarashtra, who is blind and for that reason disqualified for kingship. So the fisherwoman queen calls Vyasa again for her younger daughter-in-law, Ambalika. Since Ambalika blanches during the impregnation, her son, Pandu, is pale, diseased white, and thus only barely qualified for kingship. So the queen summons Vyasa a third time, but neither daughter-in-law can bear to face another encounter. And so they put a brave maidservant in their place. She gives birth to a perfect son, Vidura, who lives as an advisor to the court. But having no legal connection to King Shantanu, he cannot inherit the throne. The younger, pale prince, Pandu, eventually marries a senior wife, Kunti, and also a junior wife. But while hunting in the forest, he fatally shoots a stag while it is in union with a doe. The stag is really a human hermit in disguise, who with his dying breath curses Pandu to die the first time he has sexual intercourse, meaning Pandu can have no biological sons. This would have terminated his branch of the descent line. But Pandu's senior wife, Kunti, remembers that she had earned a boon from the gods during her youth. This enabled her to call down any god and have a son by him. Impulsively, she immediately used this boon while looking up at the sun, giving her a son by the sun god. Embarrassed by this premarital pregnancy, she floated the baby down river, 
where a virtuous but low-ranked chariot driver and his wife found and raised his son as Karna. So when the pale king Pandu needs sons, Kunti uses her boon to call down first the god Dharma, next the god of the fierce winds, and then finally the warrior god Indra, having a son by each of them. The eldest is much is most virtuous, Yudhishthira, the next the strongest, Bhishma, and the third the best warrior, Arjuna. Pandu's junior wife begs for even one use of this boon. She then cleverly calls down the twin Ashvin gods of prosperity, giving her twin boys, Nakula and Sahadeva. These five brothers, known collectively as the Pandavas, form one royal faction that claims the throne, although their connection to King Shantanu is quite indirect. When Pandu succumbs to desire for his junior wife, he dies, as the curse on him promised. So his half-brother, the blind Dhritarashtra, governs as regent until the succession is resolved. Dhritarashtra's hundred sons, known collectively as the Kauravas, also claim the royal inheritance. But since their father was disqualified for kingship, their claim must skip a generation, and is even weaker than that of their cousins, the Pandavas. The two sets of cousins grow up as squabbling youths. Eventually, they need an archery teacher. Unexpectedly, a Brahmin sage, Drona, comes out of his hermitage to train the young princess. Drona faces the Brahmin dilemma between the path of asceticism and that of householder. He's gained much merit from dwelling in the forest, but the time has come for him to provide financial support for his son, Ashvataman. So Drona asked his childhood friend, now King Draupada, for aid, but was contemptuously rejected. Drona uses his accumulated karmic power to master the arts of war. He then seeks a champion from among all his students to take revenge for him on King Draupada. From among the many Pandava and Kaurava students, he selects Arjuna, the best warrior, as his favorite. Meanwhile, Karna is raised as a chariot driver. Only his mother, Kunti, knows he's actually the son of the sun god and the eldest half-brother to all of the Pandavas. Repeatedly, the Pandavas humiliate Karna for his supposed low birth, refusing him the right to participate in royal contests. In contrast, the Kauravas gain Karna's loyalty by raising him to royalty. But Karna still remains loyal to his low-born foster parents. After many struggles, the Kauravas eventually exile their rival cousins from the court and even attempt to assassinate them. Fleeing in disguise as Brahmins, the Pandavas approach King Draupada's court, where his daughter Draupadi is having a swayamvara, or self-choice wedding contest. As you'll recall, the bride gets to marry whichever qualified contestant wins. In Draupadi's swayamvara, the contest is to string a massive bow and shoot an arrow through a ring while aiming only by the ring's reflection in a pool of water. When Karna enters the contest, Draupadi rejects him as supposedly low-born. Instead, Arjuna wins by shooting five arrows through the ring. We might see this as symbolic. When Arjuna and his brothers bring Draupadi home as his prize, his mother Kunti does not notice what the prize is before inadvertently ordering all the five Pandavas to share it equally. 
Once spoken, a mother's order can't be disobeyed. So the five Pandavas all marry Draupadi. This unconventional situation provides some emic commentators with a moral challenge, and it provides some edic scholars with insights into the origins of the Mahabharata. While some tribal Adivasi and other marginal communities in India, including some in the nearby Himalayan foothills, traditionally practiced fraternal polyandry, this was not done in the Brahmanic Hindu heartland. So in Edic interpretation, this feature of the Mahabharata could not be a survival of one of those cultures' marriage systems from an early part of the Itahas. But the Mahabharata was Sanskritized into Brahmanic Hinduism. Draupadi's polyandry was explained as a unique exception. She married each of the Pandavas for a fixed time period, able to regain her virginity due to a girlhood boon before she married the next brother. So polyandry became, in this Brahmanic explanation, serial monogamy. This was still unusual in emic terms, but other high caste women could not use it as a model justifying making multiple marriages. After the Pandavas stopped pretending to be Brahmins and returned to Hastinapura court, wise counselors, including Bhishma and Drona, tried to lessen mounting tensions between the Kauravas and the Pandavas by dividing the kingdom. The Kauravas keep the more developed eastern half, but the Pandavas receive the jungled tract to the west, known as the Kandava forest, as their share. Their methods of making that region into a prosperous kingdom with a glorious capital city shows historians how this was done during the historic period of the Mahabharata. First, the Pandavas clear the forest. In emic terms, with the support of the god of fire, Agni, they burn it down, killing thousands of forest creatures that try to escape the flames. But these creatures include not just animals, but also beings the Mahabharata calls demons and nagas, meaning snakes. You'll recall from the last lecture that the North Indian-based Hindu community described other groups as non-human demons or animals. Indeed, Naga is still the name for certain forest-dwelling communities. So, in Edic terms, some scholars have speculated that we may be seeing how forest communities, with a snake as their symbol, were driven out and forests cleared to make room for settled farmers. The Pandavas next built their new capital city, named Indaprastha. This new planned city was significant for cultural, economic, military, and environmental reasons. In designing and consulting and constructing Indraprastha, the Pandavas followed the lessons of the Vastu Shastra, the Sanskrit manual about architecture. So we have detailed evidence about the ideal city and the palace in ancient North India. We also know that Indraprastha was a real city located on the Jumna River in the area where now the present capital of New Delhi sits. Indeed, there have been at least seven major cities built on that same region. This is a strategic location with the fertile Ganges agricultural area to the east and the main invasion corridor from the northwest channeled between the Rajasthan desert and the Himalayan foothills. Further, the city's site has unusually good ground and surface water, which flows down from the mountain ridge along the western boundary and into the Jumna River along its eastern boundary. So it is an especially well-situated place for a city. Having built the new Pandava capital, the senior brother, Yudhishthira, performs the great 
carnation sacrifice. The ritual requirements for this ritual include a dicing match. Conventionally, the new ruler always wins this match to prove his good karma. But in the Mahabharata, Yudhishthira loses not just once, but multiple times to the Kauravas. After staking his new kingdom, he gambles into slavery, first his brothers, then himself, and finally their shared wife, Draupadi. Gloating, the Kauravas drag Draupadi into the open court and try to strip off her sari, to shame her and her Pandava husbands. But she boldly demands justice, correctly arguing that no slave can enslave a free woman. So her husband Yudhishthira, already self-enslaved, could not gamble her into slavery. This episode shows to Enoch audiences how immoral were the Kauravas, but also to Edic readers how much men's honor was embodied by their wives, and also how powerful women could be in public and in courts. The family advisors accept Draupadi's demands and free her and her husbands. But the Kauravas demand a rematch, and Yudhishthira loses once again. This time, the stake is 12 years of exile and a 13th year in disguise. Should the Pandavas be discovered during that 13th year, they will have to accept yet another 12 years of exile. Now, the Mahabharata details many of the adventures of the Pandavas in exile and during their year-long incognito. When they successfully pay off this gambling debt, they return to face their cousins. Each side lines up allies, and the armies confront each other. Even the crows and jackals flock to feast from the inevitable heaps of corpses. Just at that apex moment, the two impatient and bloodthirsty armies pause while Arjuna engages in philosophical dialogue with Prince Krishna who is his chariot driver, cousin, and brother-in-law. This dialogue became known as the Bhagavad Gita, or Lord God's Song. The Gita is so important that we'll devote the entire next lecture to it. But to conclude the Great War of the Mahabharata, the Kaurava army has so many dignitaries that they have to decide to have each one be the sole commander-in-chief in sequence. First, Bhishma takes command. Wherever he leads, the Pandavas are vanquished. So they ask him directly how he can be killed. He virtuously replies that he would never fight against a woman or someone born as a woman. So Arjuna hides behind Princess Umba, who has vowed revenge on Bhishma, been reborn as a woman, but then traded her gender for that of a man. In battle, Arjuna shoots from behind her, now him, and mortally wounds Bhishma. This violates the dharma of a warrior, but the Pandavas argue that it was necessary in order to win. Next, the Brahmin teacher, Drona, takes command of the Kaurava forces. He too vanquishes all of the Pandavas he faces. So the Pandavas name an elephant, Ashvataman, after Drona's son and execute it. Yudhishthira then lies that Drona's son has been killed. Since Drona was only involved in the princely conflict, for his son's sake, Drona stops fighting and dies. Again, Yudhishthira's lie violates Dharma, so Yudhishthira has betrayed his own father, the god of Dharma, but it was necessary to win. Finally, Karna takes charge of the Kaurava forces. When his birth mother, Kunti, begs him to reveal that he's the eldest of the Pandavas, he refuses to betray his adoptive parents and his Kaurava allies. When Arjuna's father Indra tries to trick him out of his armor of invulnerability, 
Karna knowingly gives it up. Then Arjuna shoots Karna in the back during a time of truce. Again, a violation of the Kshatriya Dharma. But again, according to the Padanavas, this act was necessary in order to win. So while the Pandavas win the 18-day-long battle, much evil has been done. Almost all of the prominent figures die, and few of their children survive either. As a result, this battle marks the beginning of the fourth, last, and worst age of the Hindu universe, called the Kali Yuga, in which we live today. This conclusion of the epic struggle between these rival Kshatriya cousins thus powerfully proclaims not martial glory, but rather the disorder and immorality brought on by war. Overall, the Mahabharata has remained very prominent in Indian culture. Everyone knows the general story, and many Hindu men and women are named after its leading characters. People still draw moral lessons from it. Further, the Mahabharata has been incorporated into the cultures of Southeast Asia as far as Indonesia, and has attracted Edic audiences as well. Everyone can find vast amounts of fascinating emic and Edic historical material in it. This includes ancient Indian moral lessons about Dharma, social, political, military, and cultural practices, and insights into Indian history writing. In the next lecture, we'll look closely at only one small fraction of the entire text of the Mahabharata, that is, the Bhagavad Gita. But even that small section has itself inspired dozens of commentaries, books, and articles that seek to comprehend it.